I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Talk to me, people. Captain, we got the Martian Rangers inbound. They warped in right behind us. Admiral Kreta, that bastard. All right, people, high alert. Battle stations. They're right on top of us, Captain. They, they fired their pulse on the missiles. Damn it. Full power to deflector shields. Ah! Ah! We just lost the pod for a generator. Uh, what now? Thrusters down to 40%. Rewrite power to the booster jets. Oh, Rangers preparing for second attack. Captain, our shields can't withstand another direct hit. Evasive maneuvers. Uh, what alarm is that? Oh, Somebody left the door of the fridge open. Oh, what? Come on, guys. Sorry, Captain, that's my bad. What's that one? Oh, that's my phone. Time to take my birth control pill. Lyra, we are in a battle here. Sorry, I, I thought I had it on silent. How more pulsar missiles inbound, Captain? Countermeasures. <sighs> oh. the, the missiles were far too close that time, sir. The loading shield power. What the hell is that one? Uh, I'm pretty sure that one means one of the alarms has low batteries, so... Seriously? Which one is it? It's hard to say, Captain. I could go check them all out. Uh, forget it. Prepare contact beam. Uh. I think someone's breaking into your car, Captain. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Really? Afraid so. All right. Forget it. Fire contact beam. Firing contact beam. Direct hit, Captain. Take that, Kretak. Sir, uh... Oh, come on. The, uh, the victory alarm's going off now, so... Oh, for God's sake, we have an alarm for victory? Yes, sir, it's unmistakable. Um, good job, sir. Congratulations, Captain. Well, I'm glad that's finally over with. And let's hope the next Martian Ranger thinks twice before trying his luck against this outfit. You've got to be kidding me. What is that one? Actually, sir, it could be one of three things. It's either a distress beacon from a planet where an alien will latch onto your face and impregnate you with a violent organism that will burst out of your chest... Uh, or the bar is signaling last call. Um, or it's... It's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. And like you, we found that sketch very alarming. Tonight, hot coffee documentary director Susan Saladoff and singer-turned-author Storm Large. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the time it takes Suzanne Collins to think of another way to off a teenager, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And, of course, music from our house band, The Mutton Chops. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Our producer, uh, Jim Brunberg, is filling in for Ralph Huntley, who just happens to be on Broadway this month with Do Jump Theater. So congratulations to Ralph, and come home soon. 
As I mentioned earlier, uh, we have Storm Large with us tonight. We're going to be talking to her about her memoir, Crazy Enough, which outlines all the ways that she went a little crazy to stay sane. And then later we have documentarian Susan Saladoff, who directed the film Hot Coffee, which is a very illuminating film about the current state of our judicial system. You know, we've all heard the stories, right? A thief sues the owner of the house he's just broken into because he injured himself falling through the skylight and wins. Um, A man puts his Winnebago on cruise control at 70 miles an hour, goes back to make a cup of coffee. Then after the Winnebago flies off the road and overturns, he sues Winnebago for not being clear enough in the owner's manual that that is not how cruise control works. And, uh, and he wins $1.7 million. And lastly, uh, a woman spills a cup of hot coffee on her lap from McDonald's while driving, burns her legs, sues McDonald's, wins $2.7 million. Now, the first two stories, completely false. Absolutely not true. The last story has some truth in it, but the information is mostly wrong. Yes, Stella Liebeck sued McDonald's, but you're going to question just how frivolous her case was when you hear the actual details later in the show. That being said, why are we so addicted to these fake stories of frivolous lawsuits? (laughs) Most of us have gotten that forwarded email from, you know, an indignant aunt or uncle lamenting the current state of the world with, you know, one or two of these stories in it, and they always copy their entire email list. So then a chorus of, what is wrong with people today? And this makes me so mad, in all caps. And for the love of God, how can I get off this list? Reply all emails, just start flying into your inbox. And those are almost always followed by the one from your eye-rolling cousin begging your uncle to go to Snopes.com to verify the story before sending them out. Right? You just expect, it's, it's the order these come in. But almost no one does, because I think that we get some sort of pleasure out of our righteous indignation. I think that it somehow gives us a sense of self-worth. You know, I I must be a good person, because I am not evil enough to sue the peanut butter manufacturer when I accidentally cut my finger off trying to open a jar of peanut butter. I mean, let's be honest, that injury was clearly my fault. Who tries to open a peanut butter jar with a Civil War saber? I was very drunk but I am not evil. It's the same feeling many of us who are not natural housekeepers get when we watch Hoarders, right? You just think, yes, you know, there is a stack of magazines next to my bed that's about a foot high, but as long as I don't lift any of them and find an old flattened cat carcass, I'm doing really well. So does all this righteous indignation have merit? Well, according to a 2006 study by the Harvard School of Public Health, at least when it comes to frivolous medical malpractice lawsuits, they may not be as rampant and expensive as people are claiming. The study analyzed past cases and discovered that while nearly a third of the cases couldn't necessarily prove medical error, most of those cases didn't receive any compensation. In fact, the study states, quote, the number of meritorious claims that didn't get paid was actually larger than the number of meritless claims that were paid. So what it seems to be saying is that there are more people walking away with nothing or small amounts than people who are winning the medical malpractice lottery. So there are definitely flaws in the system, and our guest Susan Saladoff has some ideas on how to fix them later. But maybe the first step is to take care of our addiction to awesome frivolous lawsuit stories. I know it's a lot more interesting for me to tell you that I accidentally fell asleep in the mattress store and I had a dream that Stanley Tucci was chasing me with a giant chocolate chip cannoli and he was waving it menacingly so I got up and ran in my sleep and I fell into a hideaway bed which immediately flipped closed and I remained trapped in the bed for two days until someone finally heard my muffled cries for help over the best of the Eagles music and then they took me to the hospital where I had to have surgery to replace my coccyx so I sued the mattress company and I won two million dollars then it is to tell you that I went to the doctor recently and I found out I'm vitamin D deficient So I've been chewing a lot of gummy vitamins. Not as interesting a story, but at least it's true. Thanks, guys. So our next guest has a pretty unique career trajectory. 
She started her music career in bands like Storm and Her Dirty Mouth and Storm and the Balls in the late 90s and the early aughts. And now she's the part-time singer for the mini-orchestra sensation Pink Martini, finding herself more than comfortable in huge symphony halls all over the world. She opened up Randy Newman's musical Harps and Angels in L.A. with Michael McKean and Katie Segal and performed her own constantly sold-out and multi-extended one-woman show Crazy Enough in 2010. Now she has turned that one-woman show into a memoir by the same name. And we'll talk to her about the book later in the show, but here to sing uh, one of her newest songs, please welcome Storm Large to Livewire.
charge, everybody. She'll be back to talk to us later in the show. Hello, I'm Ira Glass, host of This American Life, from WBEZ Chicago. We have a very special treat coming up for you. It's a show that delves into a lifelong fascination of mine, the great American art form known as the prank. So we'd like to give you a little preview of our first This American Life spinoff show, Pranky Doodle Dandy. Enjoy. Look out. Pranky Doodle is coming to town, a riding on a pony, sticking a feather in your cap, and then filling that cap up with macaroni and cheese. Hey, who put macaroni and cheese in my hat? Pranky Doodle Dandy, that's who. <laughs> For our first prank, we head to the Whole Foods break room, where employee of the month, Debbie Winfield, is sitting down to enjoy a nice, pleasant lunch. That is, until Pranky Doodle Dandy rides into town. We had our co-worker, Tony, distract Debbie while we set the scene for the ultimate tomfoolery. All right, now Debbie's left the room, and we're going to get her good. Debbie's been eating Stonefield Oikos organic, fat-free Greek boysenberry yogurt. We're going to switch it with Stonefield Oikos organic, fat-free Greek Marionberry yogurt. I cannot wait to see the look on her face. I wish you guys could see it so bad. All right, let's go. Hmm, this yogurt tastes different. Weird. You're right, Debbie. It does taste different. That's because we switched your original yogurt with a different yogurt. I'm Ira Glass, and you're on Pranky Doodle Dandy. Can I have my yogurt back? <laughs> Another deposit in the prank bank. For our next prank, we visit White House Press Secretary Jay Carney. He doesn't know it yet, but he's about to get... Glassed. All right, we've snuck into Mr. Carney's office and replaced today's daily press briefing with the press briefing from the day before. Suffice it to say, this is going to be bonkers. Let the pranks begin. Oh, yeah! Okay, let me just grab the briefing and I'll be out of here in five. Hmm. Hey, Katie. Uh, did you give me today's briefing? Yes, I left it on your desk. Because uh, I'm only finding the one from yesterday. Oh, well, I could have sworn I left it on your desk. Here, let me print you another copy. Thanks, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> now that's what I call some good old-fashioned shenanigans. <laughs> Ira, you have outdone yourself this time. Okay, for this next prank, Cranky Doodle Dandy pays us a visit as we crank call my good old friend, Garrison Keeler. Let the hijinks roll. Keeler Residence. Hi, uh, is this Garrison? Yes, speaking. Who may I ask is calling? Uh, yes, this is uh, Barry Leafy from North Star Appliances, calling with a few questions regarding your refrigerator. North Star, you say? Uh -huh. uh, I used to take the North Star Rail to the Rum River, <laughs> where I'd spend my summers as a small child. Okay. Um, yes, Mr. Keeler. Well, we were inquiring as to whether or not your refrigerator is still properly I functional. I can still smell the dewy pine and hear the buzz of the mosquitoes as their wings knock rapturously at our screen door. Uh-huh. I remember one summer in particular. Uh, Mr. Keeler. The boys and I went down to the riverbank to bask in the warm glow of adolescence. Your refrigerator. I was wondering. Yes, there was a girl there. Elsa Krebsbach. And we were all enchanted by her long legs and her lingonberry jam recipe. She was a radiant creature. Okay, you know, forget it. Um, I guess some people are immune to pranks. Well, tune in for Pranky Doodle Dandy Mondays, after all things considered. For now, we return to This American Life, where we head to Nashville, Tennessee, to visit the effusive community of fans of country music stars Naomi and Winona Judd, also known as Juddalos. I'm Ira Glass. That was Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, and Andrew Harris with sound effects by David Ian. If you've just joined us, you're tuned in to Livewire Radio, and thanks for listening. 
And no, you're not experiencing deja vu. It's just summer, and our cast and crew are all oiled up by the pool, so this is a rebroadcast of the show. If you're in the Portland area, our live tapings start again on Saturday, September 8th at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can find more information on those shows and how to help sustain LiveWire's future at LiveWireRadio.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to LiveWire. Our next guest spent 25 years practicing law in the civil justice system, representing injured victims of individual and corporate negligence. In 2009, she stopped practicing law to make the documentary Hot Coffee, which premiered at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival, is now available on DVD and HBO Go, and will receive the 2012 Television Academy Honor for programs that exemplify television with a conscience. The film opens with the story of Stella Liebeck, the 79-year-old woman who spilled coffee on her lap and consequently sued McDonald's, who won initially $2.7 million in punitive damages. And the story has been used as a cautionary tale about frivolous lawsuits. But the film actually illustrates that the story is quite different from the one portrayed in the media at the time. And we're actually going to play for you a short snippet of the film, and it's starting with Stella Liebeck's lawyer, Ken Wagner, explaining why he took the case, and then it's followed by Dr. David Arredondo, who explains the medical side. I got involved in the Liebeck case by way of invitation from Reed Morgan, who was lead counsel, and once I met Reed and met Stella Liebeck and looked at the evidence, you know, they had my full attention because the coffee in question was brewed at temperatures that would approximate the temperature in your radiator after you drive from, you know, from your office to home. In Discovery, we learned that in the franchise directives and manuals that the franchisee was required to follow, that they had to have their, their waters at certain temperatures. And then they said that the holding temperature should be 180 Fahrenheit to 190 Fahrenheit. Hot liquid, whether it's coffee or water or any liquid like that, if it's in the range of 180 degrees or hotter, if it is in contact with your skin for more than just a few seconds, it will produce very serious burns. If you're lucky, it'll produce a second degree burn. If you're not as lucky, you will get third degree or full thickness burns requiring skin grafting and surgery. Here to talk about her film, Hot Coffee, please welcome Susan Saladoff to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. I wanted to start off by saying that, that you were a lawyer for a long time, and just I'm interested in why you stopped uh, why you stopped doing that and decided that you wanted to make this film. So I didn't set out to become a filmmaker. I just had something to say. Um, I had been practicing for 25 years, and in all that time, I knew that there were these myths and distortions that had been fed to the public about how crazy our legal system is. You know, lawsuit, lottery, jackpot justice, all the little jokes you made at the beginning. And that wasn't my experience, and what I knew is that we only have three branches of government. We have our executive branch, our legislative branch, and our courts. 
But most people know that our legislative branch and our executive branch have been influenced by power and money. But what people don't know is that our courts have essentially been bought and paid for by corporate America these days. And I wanted to get the truth out to the American public. Yeah. Yeah, the film is, uh, frankly, it's pretty depressing um, <laughs> because, because it, it sort of leaves you without faith in the, in the justice system as it currently stands. Um, I wanted for you to talk a little bit about Stella's case, though. Um, so what exactly did happen with her case? So this is a 79-year-old woman. She had never brought a lawsuit a day in her life. She was a passenger in a parked car. Okay. Jane Pauley represented, told the world, she, Jane Pauley was substituting for Tom Brokaw um, at, on the NBC Nightly News the, the night that the verdict came out and reported to the world that she was driving. Yeah. She wasn't. She, her grandson was driving the car. They got a, a cup of coffee through the McDonald's, a drive-thru, and they put the time, which was in 1992, it was in one of those old-fashioned styrofoam cups with that little plastic top with the triangular thing nobody yeah. could get open. flimsy. And she wanted cream and sugar. They put it in the bag. They pulled into a parking spot, and she tried to get that little top off, couldn't, so she pulled the top of the cup uh, off, and there were no cup holders anywhere, so she, had a, she steadied it between her knees like this, and the coffee was so hot that the cup literally collapsed, and the coffee spilled in a bucket seat in her crotch, and she tried to get out of it. She was wearing cotton underwear, nylons, and a sweatsuit. She couldn't get out of it fast enough, and the coffee was so hot that it caused third-degree burns, which are the worst kinds of burns yeah. you can have in her private parts. She was eight days in the hospital, had to take skin from her thighs and sew it inside of her. And all she wanted was the difference between what her medical bills were and what Medicare paid. And McDonald's offered her $800, never offered her another penny. They had been uh, paid out over 700 times for other claims of people who had been burned by their coffee. So they knew it was this hot. In fact, the yeah, quality... Yeah, they gotten a lot of complaints. The quality assurance representative who's in the movie said, you can't drink coffee at this temperature, you will get burned. And the verdict, which everybody thinks is so crazy, which was 2.7, was two days of coffee sales for McDonald's which was then reduced to $480,000, and then they wound up settling the case, but she was subject to a gag order, and McDonald's wasn't. So there was all this myth that came out, and yeah. she wasn't able to say anything to combat it. So that's the reason that the media got it so wrong, because everyone told this story. Did, did McDonald's put out a press release with their version of the story? You know, what's really crazy is that the Wall Street Journal of all places actually reported the story accurately, but the Jay Leno's of the world and the David yeah. Letterman's got a hold of it. Seinfeld, there was a Seinfeld, Seinfeld made a, a whole story, you know, a whole episode where Kramer spilled coffee and yeah. um, goes to, you know, Jackie, the lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, but so it became the it came the butt of became the butt of jokes of and it became the poster child for what's wrong with our civil justice system. Yeah. And then it was repeated over and over again. I mean, even just last year, it was in a country western song by you know Toby Keith or something. I mean, it, how many of you know about it? I mean, everybody, right? Um, but everybody. Well, once Toby Keith is talking about something that's right. in the current <laughs> news, it's out there. Um, <laughs> Well, and before I saw the film, I was under the impression that there were all of these citizens groups, you know, all these people who were up in arms and they created these organizations that were fighting these frivolous lawsuits, but it turns out that's not the case. These groups were made up by a public relations firm. They're, they were called Citizens Against Lawsuit Abuse, but there were no citizens in them. They were really, they pretended to be grassroots groups, but they were actually astroturf groups because they were made up by the public relations firm. And, and can you talk about what tort reform is? Yeah, so most people have no idea what a tort is. I, I think it's a French pastry, which... It is delicious. It is, you know, with an E, it's definitely. Yeah. Um, and yet... And, and, of course, very, even fewer people know what tort reform is, but they've heard the term, and they think they should know it by now, and they think it's a good thing for them, but it's not. Um, a tort is a civil harm. When somebody has hurt you in some way, they've caused you a harm, and you can get damages for that. That's called a tort. And tort reform are all of the different ways that corporations have figured out to convince you to give up your own constitutional rights to access the court system. Right. And the reason why they figured out that that was a good thing to do was because the only place where we as average citizens can hold wrongdoers accountable is in our courts. And if they take that away from us and prevent us from getting into the court system, they can make more money. Yeah. 
And so they figured that out. And so in the film, there are four storylines in the film. It starts with the truth behind the McDonald's coffee case and what was happening politically at the time. But then it really tells four different stories, and each one represents a different way that we as Americans are giving up our rights to access the court system. Well, and one of the ways that you talk about is that we are all signing away our rights in binding arbitration agreements without really knowing it, that, that, that those are sort of buried in our cell phone contracts and credit card contracts. In the fine print of every contract that you will read these days, including everything online, you know, you have to check off one of those little boxes before you can buy anything online, um, are these, embedded in them, are these mandatory or forced arbitration clauses. And you go, well, what's that, and what can I do about it? Well, what it, you've, by the way, you sign these, or even just by using your credit card or using your cell phone, you're agreeing to it. And then, if you ever have a dispute with this company, they pick the decision maker, they pay for the decision maker, the decision maker doesn't have to come up with a reason why he or she made the decision, it's completely secretive and there's no right to appeal. So who wins? You and I don't win. And there is a very, very small percentage of people who actually win against the corporations, right? It's like one out of ten if you're lucky. Uh, And these are everywhere now. Uh, And and, and our U.S. uh, Supreme Court has essentially said that they're okay. And so the only way we can get rid of these is either cross them out, if you can, in some contracts, like when you buy a car these days, they'll be in in there, cross them out and sign your initials, um, negotiate to get them out, or there's a bill pending in both the House and the Senate called the Arbitration Fairness Act, and we need to contact our, our legislators and tell them to support it. And they can probably find that at a, a way to contact them at your website. At yeah, the, our website, which is hotcoffeethemovie.com, and there's a take action page on there that right. gives people... Because you're right, at the end of the film, we did have... When, when the film was in the film festival circuit, we had these action items at the end, but then it got on HBO, and they made us take them out. But they're yeah. on our website, and they're also on the DVD, and there's a take action page on our website so that when you get pissed off, which you will after you see this movie... You will. You're going to want to go... be happy. You know, you're going to want to do something. Take all that energy and go do something. And the do something is to go to our take action page or show the film to other people. Right. So um, do you feel like the amount of, of action that's come from, from your film and the amount of information that's gotten out there, do you feel that that's actually, that, that it's getting through to people? Absolutely. People write to me all the time. This is eye-opening. Every American should see this film. Every high school student should see this film. I used to think like those people in the movie, because we interview a lot of people on the street, and people say, I was one of those people. I used to make fun of that lady. I will never do that again. You know, I will never vote the same way. I will never think about these issues the same way. And I'm thrilled by that, because I made the movie with the intention of changing the conversation about the civil justice system, and it's actually happening. So for, yeah, for you, ideally, what happens based on this? What, what do you think needs to change about the system? Well, I want us to get back our constitutional rights. We are give, as Americans, we are handing over our constitutional rights every single day to large corporations. And I want us to take them back. I mean, most people know what the First Amendment and the Second Amendment to the Constitution are, but how many of you know what the Seventh Amendment is? Well, the Seventh Amendment is trial by jury. And that means that we have the right to have a jury of our peers decide these cases. Right. Well, what's happened is, is that by caps on damages, by these mandatory arbitration clauses, by judicial elections where we're voting for judges who are basically being handpicked by large corporations and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, by these public relations campaigns that are convincing all of us that the system is ridiculous and broken, we are essentially saying, here, corporations, you make more money and take away our rights. And I don't think that's what we should be doing. I think we should be taking back our rights, and this film tells you what's happening and how you can make a difference. Well, and remember, you can actually uh, you can actually see the movie on HBO Go, um, and it's also available on DVD as well. Yes, from our website, and also it's uh, available on Netflix on DVD. But if you go to our website, you can buy a DVD, or it's on Amazon. You know, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great movie. Thank uh, you. The movie is Hot Coffee. The director is Susan Saladoff. Thank you Thanks so much for, for joining me. us.
Now it's time for The Salad Off with Susan Salad Off. It's the Salad Off, Salad Off. It's the Salad Off, Salad Off. Tonight, Susan faces Andrew Harris, salad enthusiast and amateur magician. Trisha, how's the game played? Courtney will ask Susan Saladoff and Andrew a question about salad or salad-related history, and the first one to buzz in and give three correct answers wins. Tell them what they'll win, Sean. Trisha, it's a gently used copy of Transformers the movie on DVD. Now, it's missing disc one, so it's really just the special features disc. Um, It's still good, though. There's still good special features. I have no idea where disc one is. Courtney. Thanks, Sean. All right, let's start the salad off with Susan Salad Off. It's the salad off, salad off. It's the salad off, salad off. Yeah. All right, here's your first question. The Waldorf salad was developed between 1893 and 1896 by the maitre d' of the Waldorf Hotel. What was his name? Susan Saladoff. Oscar Chersky. That is correct. Damn it. All right. Question two. What meat salad is the unofficial national dish of Laos? Susan Saladoff again. Larb. That is correct. Damn it. All right. Here is your third question. This popular summer salad originated from the Tuscany region. Susan? Panzanella. Oh, she is clearly cheating. Damn it! Susan, you have won, and I have to say, I can't believe how much you know about salad. Really? Do you have any idea how many salad offs I've been in? It started when I was in second grade. It's not my choice to know everything about salad, but when a salad off is foisted on you at every turn... Okay, here's your Transformers DVD. Should a a seven-year-old be able to tell the subtle difference between a black olive and the traditional calatari olive? Necessary for a perfect salad niçoise? No, she shouldn't. But I could. I had to. Now give me that DVD. I earned it. That was the salad dog, salad dog. This has been the salad off with Susan Salad Off. Next week... Next week, we pit Trisha Ferguson in a Nicolas Cage match against Nick Nolte. It's a Nicolas Cage match against Nick Nolte, yeah! Now back to Livewire. We got to hear a song from Storm Large earlier in the show, but as we mentioned, she is now an author... She has been called an irresistibly rambunctious force of nature by geek love author Catherine Dunn. And back now to talk about her book, please welcome Storm Large back to the stage. Welcome back to the show, Storm. You, you've been a busy lady since you've been gone. I know. I've noticed. <laughs> it's great to have you back. Oh, it's so, so good to be back, yeah. So I wanted to talk about the book and have you read a little bit from it, because the book is mostly about your relationship with your mother, and she had some unfortunate mental issues, and, and a lot of the book is about that. And um, there's, a, there's a piece in the book that uh, is about maybe the worst psychiatrist in the world. We don't know necessarily. <laughs> By process of elimination, there must be one. Um, but I thought that maybe you could read that passage quickly so people have an idea. All right. I came prepared. Mom called everyone lovey. If she knew you for five minutes, you were lovey. Her psychiatrists were no exception. They were all familiar characters as mom got locked up more and more frequently, and I was used to being around them. It was nothing for me to chat with this or that Dr. Lovey and practice being the tough little girl who was totally unfazed by the madness or sadness she had just seen. Oh, well, I shrugged, my sneakered heel bouncing on the floor. 
Your mom's been having a hard week, but she'll be okay, Stormy, he said. Yeah, I know, it's no big deal. He was still writing with his head down, and I hated the quiet. At least I'm not going to be crazy like her, right? Now, you know when you ask a question you already know the answer to, and you're just trying to make conversation? You're just being friendly, engaging, filling up any uncomfortable, quiet gaps. Kind of like, God, don't you just love chocolate? Or, what the heck is the deal about cats and Christmas tinsel anyway? You know it only ends up in their poop, right? Stupid cats. <laughs> I expected that he would guffaw and say, oh, silly girl, of course not. And then he would ruffle the hair on my silly head as he passed by me on his way to do some doctoring elsewhere. But barely giving me a glance, Dr. Lovey nodded and he said, oh, well, yes, it's hereditary. You absolutely will end up like your mother and my heels stopped bouncing. As he tore off the piece of paper he'd been scribbling on and got up to leave, he said, I imagine to comfort me, probably not until your 20s, or when you have children, whichever comes first. All I remember after that was getting very hot in my face and standing very still in the doorway. I bit my cheeks and heard the kerplip kerplop of ping pong going on around the corner. I wanted to walk away, take back the question, go back in time, ask him about something else, change the subject, or just shut up. But instead, I was frozen. Dr. Lovey, on his way out, said something about how lucky I was that we knew so much about my mother's illness now, so that when the time came for me to get treatment, not to worry, we'll know how to take care of it. And then he left, just like your mother. Great, doctor. Thanks, Norm. So a lot of what this book is about is you doing everything you can not to turn into your mother. So right. what were some of the things that you did to not turn into her? Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, I was 9 or 10 when that happened. And to be fair, I know that sounds, it sounds ludicrous what the doctor said. It sounds horrible and terrible and irresponsible. Maybe it was those things, but that's still kind of the prevailing thinking of today. Addictions and mental illnesses run through family lines. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I started by just hating her first. And that started to creep in, just hating her and trying to just get her away from me and not think about her and running away from home and, and being a bit irresponsible with my body. <laughs> Let's just That's say. a nice way to put it. Yeah, yeah, for the radio. <laughs> I'm cleaning up my act. I sing with symphonies. <laughs> it was very smooth. It was very smooth. So, I mean, a lot of people talk about how raw this book is, how open you are, how honest you are, and, and there's a lot of devastating scenes in, in the book, you know, uh, where you're doing heroin, you're getting off heroin. Uh, what was the process like for you to write all of these experiences out? You know, the, the, big, the big exclamation points that happened throughout my story of my life and looking back, those were kind of easy to look at. Um, it was nuancing them to make them funny and also, also writing in general because I felt that to be an author, you had to be incredibly educated and um, on a different trajectory, as you said, not a... Not a an old rocker who was trying to, you know, make her way through the world as a musician, you know, I, I, I didn't think I had it in me to be an author. So writing this thing, having it, being under contract to write a book is a bit intimidating and daunting, especially when the whole time you're thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the worst book ever. Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. People are going to totally know I'm the worst writer ever. <laughs> but, um, so that was kind of the biggest that was the biggest challenge. And also realizing um, that a lot of the terrible things that happened in the story were my own fault. <laughs> right. You, you were the creator of your own catastrophe, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, I was a great architect of terrible decisions. Well, did it, how did that affect you as you were writing it? Were you beating yourself up for that stuff? Or were you able to... The discoveries that I made in terms of like the small small moments where I realized how cruel I had been to my mother 
and, and, and how I had taken steps to do really stupid things in the name of being tough, in the name of being cool, in the name of not being like her were really selfish and yeah. really awful. Those things made me really, really realize why so many authors are terrible alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> really bad. Yeah. Yeah, but you get to the other side of it and, you know, and then you don't drink quite as much. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're a performer. How was it for you to just write all these words down, send them out into the world, and people just took from them what they wanted to? <laughs> they interpreted them, them themselves. You... That was actually, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, performing is is so gratifying because, you know, you put on a nice outfit, you do your makeup, you do your hair, and you make sure your voice and your body are together, and then you throw yourself out at people, and you sing, and you try to be sexy, and you try to be engaging, and people are like, yay! Wow, I love you! And then at the end of the night, you get money and drinks, <laughs> and it's awesome! And then you go home, and you're like, my life rules! <laughs> But then when you're alone, when you're writing a book or a story or an essay or a show, you know, you're alone in your house and you could write something that's really funny. You'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> and you're alone and nobody cares. <laughs> I, um, before you go, um, you're actually going to sing one more song for us. I am. I, I believe. think so. Am I going to do it right now? I, I think that you're going to do it right now if you're wow. fine with that. I'll do it right now just well, for you. Well, the book is crazy enough. The author is Storm Large. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, and Courtney. Let's hear a song.
You're listening to Livewire, and sometimes as a show, we're struck by a bout of melancholy, where we all put on our scrunchies and we share a box of Pop-Tarts with the season finale of Downton Abbey on a loop as we quietly sob and chew together. This is what happens when our podcast numbers are down. But you can help avoid all of this by simply subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. So thank you for your consideration. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Recently, it was revealed that there was only one significant change to James Cameron's new 3D version of Titanic. Cameron got word from famed American astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson that at 4.20 a.m. on April 15, 1912, the star constellation Rose gazed up at after the boat sank would have been completely different from the one portrayed in the original version. But thanks to Tyson, that's fixed now and we can all rest easy. So here are some other super duper important edits that have been made to other classics. A quarter cup of fresh basil has been added to the ziti in the restaurant scene where Michael Corleone kills Solozzo in The Godfather. The name of the streetcar in A Streetcar Named Desire has been changed to the number seven south. In Braveheart, Mel Gibson's rousing freedom speech has been replaced with a racist tirade. <laughs> Deborah Winger's character, in terms of endearment, now has a particularly bad case of irritable bowel syndrome. The toys in Toy Story no longer talk and move on their own because toys do not do that. In Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas have been restored to their natural color, which is more of a burnished apricot than straight-up orange. Mel Gibson no longer tells Helen Hunt he loves her at the end of What Women Want. That speech has been replaced with a racist tirade. In The Matrix, the red pill is now a gummy vitamin and the blue pill is a Tylenol PM. And finally, in the Twilight series, no changes have been made those films are completely accurate. These have been Livewire's super important changes to films. You're listening to Livewire Radio, and if you're in the Portland area, come to our next live show on April 28th at the Alberta Rose Theater with author A.J. Jacobs, comic Moisha Kasher, Jane Jones of Seattle's Book It Repertory Theater, and music from Lost Lander. More details at livewireradio.org. And now, as promised, to sum it all up for us with a poem he finished writing about 30 seconds ago, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight when the alarm of spring sounds with birds, car alarms, and a symphony of broken lawnmowers. It calls for a large natural gesture to celebrate its escape from the dank crack house of winter. If you want to be statuesque and vivacious like Storm Large, you need to do something healthy, something huge, something athletic and vegetarian. The closest thing to eating the world's largest salad, you need to eat a tree. <laughs> yes, 
with the sun punching canyons in the clouds and crazy drunk April. You just need to open your mouth and mind to the idea the only way to celebrate spring properly is to eat an entire tree. Fir, alder, yew, beech, sequoia, or cedar, it doesn't matter. Just eat it, damn it. Sharpen your teeth with a file. Take your shirt off and pound your chest. Get yourself a nice hot cup of coffee if you need to. <laughs> At the nearest McDoodles. Don't drink it, though. Just pour it over the bark to help scald it down into a palatable pulp. And you don't need to go completely mountain man. You don't need to bite a hunk out of the bark immediately. Try casually eating a few leaves first. Work up to it, maybe a twig or two. You know, try not to draw too much attention. Just try to look cute like a koala bear. <laughs> and if while you're doing this, a beaver comes up and stares at you angrily and challenges you to a salad off, don't panic. Just drop kick its little furly, squealy butt across the nearest duck pond and tell it to get its own tree and then say, ha ha, you've just been glassed, beaver. <laughs> when you finally get to the meat of the matter and start gnawing into the tree trunk and you dislocate your jaw, rip your throat apart and you completely destroy every bit of dental work you've ever had done, don't worry, it's spring and you could always find someone to sue. Hey, where did that beaver go? Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Susan Saladoff and Storm Large. The Mutton Chops are Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Paul Brainerd, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Burgerville, featuring Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, director Jason Rouse, and master of sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole, with guest writer Tynan DeLong. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Drew Flint, and thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.